Welcome back to Statement. Peace. <laughs> Today, we are going to be discussing a High Snobiety XBCG collaboration report called Culture, Culture, Culture. Quantifying what matters most to the new fashion and luxury consumer. But first, we are coming at you with current events. Yes, so let's get started. So in the Atlantic Ocean, there's the tropical storm Isaiah that has formed, and it is prompting forecasters to issue a tropical storm warning for several islands in the Caribbean. And it is one of the earliest named storms in this record-setting hurricane season. In addition, there are thousands of people who are protesting in the streets across Bulgaria for the third consecutive week to demand the resignation of the government and the chief prosecutor. <laughs> On Wednesday, July 29th, there was a big tech hearing in Congress that involved the executives of Apple, Amazon, Facebook, and Google. In it, the executives, they tried to testify within the House Antitrust Subcommittee, but there was essentially no new findings about their abilities to limit antitrust behavior. Additionally, the Saudi Ministry of Hajj said that the decision to restart the pilgrimage to Mecca and Medina is starting on July 28th, and that this will allow Muslims to perform the Hajj. And the Hajj is one of the five key pillars in Islam, and it is a requirement for all physically and financially able Muslims to perform at least once in their lifetime. So photos surfaced this week of people in Mecca and Medina uh, performing the Hajj, but they are doing it at a socially distant state. So the clear effects of the pandemic can be witnessed within these photos. There's an investigation on the company Everlane. Since three years ago, they have trademarked radical transparency. And recently, former employees came forward with workplace mistreatment allegations and there is now an internal Everlane investigation that was revealed in the New York Times, and they found that the brand slogan was never actually accurate due to the fact that leaders use disparaging language to discuss Black models and employees. Everlane never developed processes for fair promotions or handling workplace harassment and discrimination, and that new employees have faced an unwelcoming and toxic culture. So this is problematic because Everlane markets itself as having zero dollar markups and they've reached 50 million dollars in annual sales and a 250 million dollar valuation by 2016. In addition, Republicans will present their latest stimulus proposal on July 30th as a starting point to negotiate, so it'll most likely include funding to help schools reopen, another round of stimulus checks and liability protections for businesses. Additionally, two days ago, on July 28th, Fenty Skin dropped their first three products, Total Cleanser, which is $25, Fat Water Pour Refining Toner Serum, which is $28, and the Hydrovisor Invisible Moisturizer Plus SPF, which is $35. And the packaging is a light purple and, as per usual, looking very user-friendly. And I love the campaign with ASAP Rocky, Lil Nas X, and... Uh, Rihanna, of course. 
Today, we will be discussing the emergence of the new fashion and luxury consumer, highlighting specifically high snobiety white papers that have come out in 2020 as well as 2018. The most recent one, which was a collaboration between high snobiety and the Boston Consulting Group, specifically highlights things like how COVID has impacted the new fashion and luxury consumer. And we will be overall investigating how the luxury fashion market is really becoming a part of a buy into the culture as a growing number of consumers vote with their dollar. Just a quick explanation on what High Snobiety is. It's a German-based streetwear blog, media brand, and production agency that was launched in 2005, and it covers trends and news in fashion, art, and music, and culture. The main office is located in Berlin, and then they have additional offices in London and New York. So on page five of the 2018 High Snobiety paper titled The New Luxury by Brian Trunzo, Gian De Leon, and Emily Dreesen, there are guiding questions that we are going to try and answer ourselves with the help of these High Snobiety white papers where they additionally explore these questions. So the first question is, what is the new luxury mindset? So I think what is the new luxury mindset was well answered in the 2020 paper. And I think that it's especially relevant because High Snobiety and BCG made sure to reconduct their surveys after the onset of COVID in the United States. So they are indeed preferences and a reflection of consumers' mindsets, even in the COVID economy. And I think in terms of what is the new luxury mindset, this is particularly answered in a desirability matrix that is shown in the 2020 High Snobiety Report. And so this new luxury mindset can be seen within the idea that younger millennials and Gen Z's desirability for the luxury market is timelessness of the brand, curation of assortment, bought by friends and community, emotional connection to brand, worn by key opinion leaders and stylish personalities, and creative partnerships. So these concepts were recognized by High Snobiety as passion drivers, in other words, attributes that encourage desirability with a proven significant impact on passion towards a brand. This represents a true dichotomy when comparing the desirability of previous consumer mindsets when it comes to the luxury market, because when they look at other traditional markers of luxury, such as product value, unique product style, quality, sustainability, status signal, and limited editions, none of those concepts were seen as a passion driver for Gen Z and younger millennials. So when looking at the traditional markers of luxury, this being product value, unique product style, quality, sustainability, status signal, and limited editions, only older millennials and younger millennials recognize status signal as a passion driver, and only Gen X recognize quality as a passion driver. But Gen Z recognized none of these traditional markers of luxury as a passion driver. So to answer the question, what is the new luxury mindset? I think that these papers represent the idea that the new luxury mindset is this idea of cultural credibility and the idea that consumers try to vote with their dollar align with brand voice and brand story because their passion drivers are things like emotional connection to brand, creative partnerships, bought by friends and community, et cetera, and all of the other aforementioned attributes of cultural credibility. Mm-hmm. 
I agree. And I think something that the 2020 paper and both the 2018 paper bring up is that this whole paradigm of what luxury is, is shifting from exclusivity to more so inclusivity. So luxury definitely is seen as more democratic, in my opinion. Obviously, it still comes at a cost, but it's more closely aligned with knowledge and access as opposed to cold, hard cash, especially especially when you're thinking about things that have kind of like a cultural component to it or come from a rare collection or are seen as limited edition. I think that drives a lot of luxury items in today's generation. And to reference to exactly what you were talking about, Catherine, I feel like you're so right in that millennials and Gen Z are shifting away from that traditional definition of what luxury may be. You can even see that with department stores. I feel like department stores tend to tailor their products and brands that they buy to the majority of the populations that shop at those stores, but they don't necessarily have these like smaller companies or rare items that Gen Z and millennials are buying into. And I think that's where you can kind of see like the failure of Barney's and Neiman Marcus because they don't have those lines. And I know some department stores such as Nordstrom and Bergdorf Goodman have tried to do like pop-up shops or have tried to have younger people come in to create this collaborative nature that you may see in smaller individual companies, but it still isn't very prevalent. It should be interesting to see if larger department stores will be able to keep up with this changing definition of luxury. Right. And in the 2020 report, they quote Virgil Abloh at one point, who is the creative director of men's Louis Vuitton and the founder of Off-White. And he says, it used to be top down with brands, which were holier than thou, debuting ideas that would go down into the stream. In the last five years, there's been a sense of empowerment to reverse that flow and send things back up. It's a consumer revolt. And at the center of this is the internet and social media. So as you mentioned, I think department stores and previously recognized mainstream actors in trend setting are now having to accustom their usual practices to this consumer revolt and the fact that they are no longer the trend-setting players, but in fact, influencers and people who are cultural pioneers, as Heisnabidi references them, are in fact becoming the trendsetters. Yeah, exactly. And I think in the 2018 report, they have a statistic that states 45% of the luxury market is set to be made up of Gen Z and millennials by 2025. And in 2017, these generations combined for 85% of all luxury growth. And by 2020, 50% of all global luxury consumers will be younger than 30 years old. So this is really interesting because it shows that this growth of these generations are kind of pushed by this demand to achieve a unique identity while buying into what's considered luxury items. But it's a market that kind of... or. that retracts from everyone trying to be the same, if that makes sense. Right. Um, Otis, what influencers do you look to as uh, a cultural pioneer? As a cultural pioneer? Wow. (laughs) It's interesting because I don't really think there is one person for myself. Mm -hmm. I think I read a lot of blogs, I follow a lot of influencers, but I I don't think I could identify one person or one group as a kind of cultural pioneer, at least, that influences myself, mostly because I think I've been following blogs for so long. Like, a lot of the big bloggers today, like Song of Style, Ami, and people of that sort of level, I had followed when they were just starting off, 
and to see it kind of grow into this business where it's more so less of their individuality and in my opinion directed by these larger designers and fashion houses that are a little antiquated in my opinion i feel like you have to take everything that's presented with a grain of salt so with that i think it's pushed me to kind of research more in blogs and and sources like heisnabiety where they're looking at the intersection of culture fashion music art like those are topics that I also want to invest my time into. So when there are publications like Heisnabiety that report on topics such as those, I feel like you get more of that intersectional intersectional cultural awareness. And for myself, I feel like since I was young, what my clothes represent and how I present myself is more important than their quality or design. Mm. It's interesting that as the influencers that you initially followed begin to kind of engage with capitalist structures like ads and things like that, you've turned away from them. And uh, in the 2020 report, it says, it quotes, it's often said that influencers are dead. And I think this is because influencer marketing is kind of seen as stripping influencers of their own individuality, as you mentioned, and replacing it with a desire for income, which you definitely can't blame influencers for doing. And I do think that it's a very solid source of income and definitely capitalizing on what influencers are now. But this report says that we found that 68% of shoppers claim to know when someone has paid to promote a brand or product in a social post. Yet 60% would still consider buying products discovered through these promotions so long as they feel the partnership makes sense. And I think that this idea of making sense is the trust that people put in influencers, that even though their individuality, in a sense, may be stripped by these larger companies, they are still mm-hmm. making sound decisions and partnering with companies that they themselves would align with. So then we identify with the influencer and their own personal values and give them trust in the fact that they would then partner with companies that identify with their own values And it kind of reminds me of, for instance, people like Khloe Kardashian partnering with Febreze. It didn't really make sense. (laughs) Um, (laughs) No, for sure. And I I feel like you see that a lot with influencers or YouTubers, even when they say that they will only present sponsored content when they really feel like the product is good. But I feel like as with most advertisements or propaganda... (laughs) (laughs) like the more you see something the more you're going to feel inclined that that's a cool trendy item or you really like that you know and I feel like for myself like I'm not someone who wants to have something everyone else has like Mm -hmm. I do definitely buy into trends since I've gotten older I think I have done this a little bit more is that making sure the product really aligns with something that I know I will get good use out of and kind of speaks more so to the personality or to my personality or has a cultural component or has a story behind it which is something that this 2018 paper brought up is that a lot of consumers will buy into items that have a story behind it and I think you see that with this increase in vintage wear or thrifting like that's become a huge trend especially during this COVID era I see that with my sister and her friends and you can even see it on TikTok I've seen a lot of people who you know like they are able to go and find these pre-used items and either make something of their own from it or really appreciate the fact that it's had a life before it's come into their lives right 
So something that this paper from 2018 states is that coolness is unquantifiable, but a term that comes close is cultural currency or knowledge that creates a perception around a product. The currency is minted, produced, and distributed by elite consumers and the communities to which they belong, backed by a collective consciousness among those who ultimately determine its value. People are buying into a specific culture, and I think you definitely see that when there are like certain sneaker drops or limited edition things. Like for example, this paper brings up this sneaker that is an undefeated X Nike Air Max 97 sneaker, which was released exclusively at ComplexCon in Long Beach, California. Now it currently trades for 330% over that price on sneaker resale platforms such as StockX. So even though that there were releases of two similar but still limited edition versions earlier that year, that colorway remains one of the most sought after mm. simply because of, of its scarcity and the culture behind it. So one of the other questions asked and answered in the 2018 white paper is why early adopters are cashing in on subcultural knowledge. So how do you think that plays into what you just mentioned, this idea of the subculture? Like it's this whole notion that is explained throughout this paper that it's knowledge and access versus the actual cost. And I think you see that in a lot of things like merch from specific concerts and stuff of that like stuff like that it has this whole story behind it or like you had to be there kind of thing there's Mm. that more of that experiential factor which is brought up later in the paper where it's more like people buying into these experiences rather than just buying material items so when you have something that kind of has that story behind it or has that culture behind it or has even like a specific event associated to it people know that you have the knowledge and access Okay, so in the 2018 article, they say that with the totality of recorded human knowledge in our pockets, anyone can figure out how to manufacture or obtain an expensive or exclusive product. The real luxury is in an extended knowledge, a knowledge that rewards its holder for wading through the endless noise found at retail and on the internet with comfortable products and experiences, which I think is so true. Like when you have a rare item, the fact that you have that or if something really sells out really quickly and you have that item and you figured out a way to get it, has its own value to it. So it adds so much more of the quote-unquote cost uh, to what its market price may be. Right. And I think that the people who are able to cash in on that subcultural knowledge are coined as innovators in the emerging group of cultural pioneers. And so in the 2020 report, they go through this cycle of the adoption of ideas and trends which is innovator, early adopter, early majority, late majority, and laggards. And I actually studied this in a paper that I wrote at the institution of Wellesley College through an artificial intelligence course that I took last semester, my final semester before graduating. (laughs) Um, So I wrote a paper called AI Aqua and More, examining artificial intelligence and fashion trend forecasting. And in it, I described a concept coined by Everett Rogers in 1962 in a publication called The Diffusion of Innovations. And in it, he cites the same thing that Heisenbaity was talking about, where we go from innovator, 
early adopter, etc. In my paper, I wrote that according to the diffusion of innovation theory, trends begin with the innovator who comprises approximately 2.5% of the population that deviate from the mainstream, craft unconventional ideas, and either become revered by mainstream society or fade into obscurity. So then following innovators, early adopters then take on the trend. And according to the study conducted by Jonathan Openshaw for Mr. Porter, these early adopters comprise 13.5% of the population, and they are traditionally recognized as the trendsetters. And they are not the original cultural pioneers because those are the innovators, but they are seen as more taking on the trendsetter role. And then 34% of a population is generally the early majority, which then begins popularizing the trend. And following that, another approximately 34% of the population comprises the late majority, which is the next demographic of the population to partake in the trend. But these consumers tend to take part in self-conscious, yearning-to-be-accepted behavior. And then finally, trends are acquired by laggards, which compose 16% of the population. And laggards will accept trends only when they have become recognized as commonplace and traditional. And by the time laggards adopt a trend, it's usually a signal that a new trend is coming. Wow, I relate to this so much. To put it in more, I guess, a personal anecdote, I feel like you definitely see things at the higher level of like smaller companies create a really cool item. It's probably really high cost because it's high quality and they're making a smaller quantity. And then from there, you then maybe see larger designers and fashion houses create a similar product because they notice the traction that these smaller companies are creating. And then from there, you see it in more mainstream such as brands that are in-house for Nordstrom, let's say, or Saks, whatever it is. And then from the department stores, I think it goes into more fast fashion. And even from there, I feel like you could get translation into what I would see as cheaper fast fashion, but with more like traditional values, such as lines that you would see in Target or Walmart of that sort. Right. Um and you can even see it on your like, Instagram or something. Like when I see something that I've been eyeing for a really long time within two years or something, if it picks up a little bit, then you'll see it on Zara or Pretty Little Thing or whatever it may be at such a reduced cost. But I can't tell if the design the or the initial intent behind the item, and maybe this is just because I put too much importance on the actual like story behind things um and the value of it i don't know if that stays intact once it gets so downstream Mm. what kind of trends have you noticed that specifically with well more recently i've been eyeing the skirt from this small company called orson iris Mm -hmm. which is a smaller company based out of brooklyn they've kind of picked up in the past couple years because celebrities have been seen wearing their clothing such as kylie jenner a couple years ago emily rachiowski and then they had one top that definitely took its toll on the uh, influencer circuit. <laughs> mm-hmm. But yes, it's extremely expensive, but very well constructed. I feel like it's pretty unique. And then the other day, I was just scrolling through my Instagram and see an Instagram ad for Verge Girl, which is another fast fashion company based out of Australia. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. Looks so similar. <laughs> so I go through Verge Girl. 
on what's new there. And then I look at the skirt and it's so, oh, it's just a disgrace to the initial design. It's interesting that you mention this kind of partaking in the subculture yourself because this 2020 report also says that 27% of Gen Z and 23% of millennials now identify as creative, growing from 22% and 19% respectively compared to two years ago, which is referencing the findings in the 2018 report. So they're increasingly being seen as creative. And I think that your story with this skirt exemplifies that because you take part in the creative aspects of pulling at all of these various brands and understanding the brand voice and brand story and really taking part in what the 2020 report cites as brand equity, which Mm -hmm. is this idea that the impact of consumers themselves can be seen within within the umbrella of brand equity, where there's equity between the consumer as well as the influencers that partner with the brand and the brand designers themselves. No, definitely. And I think it's less so about what luxury used to be, where it's shared status, but more so shared values. Mm-hmm. So one of the other questions that relates to this is how mass consumers are willing to pay a premium to feel included in the cultural conversation. So in that way, what kind of premium do you feel like you have had to pay or have been willing to pay in order to involve yourself in that cultural investment and research? Mm. Well, you definitely have like the time investment, right? The Mm -hmm. fact that I'm going through articles, researching these companies, seeing if there are similar ones, where the materials for the item may be sourced. Like I just bought this necklace from this small Greek company and I opened it while I was talking to Catherine and I was so impressed by their sustainable packaging and all of this, but all of the pearls are all sourced in Greece and then there are two women who just make the necklaces. But then obviously I think when you are investing in smaller companies and they are using more expensive materials, you do end up paying the higher cost of market price you know and I think that's kind of something a hard fact to swallow because you would hope that you wouldn't have to pay that much but I think for myself if that means investing into a company that has values that I support I would rather put my dollar in companies like those rather than larger corporations how about you Catherine (laughs) I guess I I don't I don't see it as a premium because I'm really passionate about involving myself in the cultural conversation. I mean, I used to think of spending time on social media as a really frivolous task, but as I've embarked on this journey of founding my consultancy, as well as hosting this podcast, I've noticed that my consumption of social media knowledge and just general consumption of subculture subculture and mainstream culture has really been informing a lot of the decisions that I've been making as I move forth with creating my own content and company. So I don't see it as a premium at all, but just a task that I really enjoy taking part in. And usually when I choose items to buy, I don't make a conscious effort to be inspired, but I try to find things that inspire me. Like for instance, I so I was inspired. Mm-hmm. I was really inspired by the Fembots and Austin Powers, 
And I tried to find a dress that emulated kind of the theme. I didn't want it to be quite so risque, but I wanted there to be a lot of pink and fluffiness and a lot of eccentric (laughs) other details that I really like what I wear to have. And so I ultimately couldn't find anything. And I decided to just sew my own dress from scratch. I went to Joanne's and bought a bunch of fabric and got zippers and accessories of white fluff. And I put them together. And it wasn't the most seamless looking dress, but I was really proud because it probably took me 24 hours worth of labor to create it. And I wore it to our society formal. And it was what I had envisioned exactly for the idea. So that kind of premium, I guess I'm willing to pay, but I don't see it as a premium so much as following my passion. (laughs) I'm ready. (laughs) New vibes. Into the next question, which brands are capturing youth consumers by turning aspiration into inspiration? So do you have Um, any other brands that you particularly identify with that you think bring you inspiration and aspiration? Hmm. That's interesting because I'm not one person who buys a lot from one brand. I actually don't like when a lot of my things are from one place. Uh, And I was even like this when I was younger. Like I would think of one fashion item or one piece of clothing that had specific attributes and then look for that across the board, which is interesting. I don't think I really buy back from a lot of companies. Yeah, I don't think there's any brands that I personally have invested in. I There are brands that I follow carefully, like Nike, and I think especially when Virgil took over Louis Vuitton men's, I was interested in how that brand story really developed and took on a voice, but I don't really consistently invest in one brand either. This particular l- report cites things such as Dapper Dan, the legendary Harlem couture year. And he says the clothes didn't just match the message and the sampling that the young people were bringing about. They needed something that was consistent with the attitude and their approach toward reality. And that wasn't there for them. The symbol of success is in the logo. You could wear fine garments, but kids would need to know that these garments cost money. The more of the logo you have, the more expensive the garment seems. And it looks like you arrived. And I think this is really interesting because it kind of plays into previous episodes content in that there's a lot of trends that are rooted in Black culture themselves. And Logomania is one of them uh, due to Dapper Dan's proliferation of the idea of Logomania. And he is a Black creator himself. And so it's cool to see now that these are being studied and observed within the idea of the new and luxury consumer. And I think that the fact that it's rooted in Black culture is a big part of its brand story. So as consumers are increasingly investing in brand stories and taking part in this brand equity, this is an especially important piece of the puzzle. So this kind of plays into the very last question about how physical retail and e-commerce are playing off each other's strengths. I think as this COVID era has kind of taken place and we're living through it right now, there has been the presence of online fashion shows. So that should be interesting to see after things get back to a normal pace, what resulting change will look like because 
I think these online shows created a lot more access and that people could go to these shows from wherever they are. And I know some shows showed more of the background uh, or more of the behind the scenes and every step along the way to create a fashion show. This whole idea of blended retail experiences, like I know some companies have created this really curated brand online and through magazines and then you will get certain pop-up shops like me and Catherine last summer went to Louis Vuitton or Virgil Abloh's Louis Vuitton pop-up shop in New York City. What are your thoughts Catherine? Well did you attend any of the fashion shows any of the virtual fashion shows? Neither did I but but I think it's like interesting that you and I are both interested in fashion but we didn't. I mean I saw like small clips of it on social media but I think it's mainly the models will... I'm actually looking at Derek Blasberg's YouTube's first virtual fashion show right now. It's the CR Runway with MFAR, Fights COVID-19, Fashion Unites, hashtag with me. And so they have different models who film on their iPhones, it looks like, different pieces. And then they just walk forward in the piece of clothing, do their usual model walk, and then walk back. But I think people aren't as inclined to watch this because... It doesn't have the allure of being in the front row and seeing the attendees of the show and seeing the models in Mm. person and the whole pressure of putting a show together. And so Mm. I think when people have these online shows, there's not as much of an appeal. I mean, if you're just if you're a fashion buyer and using these shows for that reason and just to see the clothes, then it is still very useful But I think the normal buzz and feel that comes with being at a fashion show is missing. And so it de-incentivizes people from wanting to watch these kind of fashion events. So maybe it would make people think that they're actually less necessary than they really are. And maybe in the future, they would just stop them altogether because they're really quite expensive, laborious and especially hard on models. Yeah, no, definitely. I was listening to this Business of Fashion podcast with Imran Ahmed and Tim Blanks, who is the editor-in-chief of Business of Fashion. And they were talking about how strange it was when in February, March, when fashion shows usually would have been and things were first starting to close and how it really taught them that they don't actually have to be at every show you know? And like you said, it's a really laborious process and people rush from place to place and it's a month of going into traveling and attending all these events and whatnot. And it's not really necessary. And I I, I completely agree with what you said, Catherine, because I think about myself, like how do I get access to those shows or how do I see what's actually being produced? For myself, a lot of it is who's sitting in the front runway or who's sitting in the front row and what are they posting on their social media? Because the people that I tend to follow tend to go to the same shows. Or if you go on Vogue Runway, usually they have a collection of photos from each show and that will be posted online. So you can go through those things. Or if you read an article, but I think because there have been so many other things going on in the world that hasn't taken center stage. And I think it'll definitely push to also what we've talked about in past episodes where Fashion houses will not have season-directed shows, but more so uh, one or two shows a year. This idea of where these huge fashion houses no longer have a show is uh, quite out of the norm. And like you said, kind of having something that's produced from home, where it almost seems like models have more autonomy over how they create, how they're viewed, Mm -hmm. is a very interesting um, direction. 
Right. Well, now I think they're just sent the PR box and the piece of clothing, given a few pieces of direction, and then they just kind of do what they can in their house. Like, I know that Ashley Graham was recently featured on a cover. It was her Harper's Bazaar UK cover mm-hmm. for May. And it was, her husband shot it at home. Her husband, Justin Irvin, he shot it for her at home. Well, I think that this was an excellent discussion on the general nature of high snobiety's findings and just the Gen Z consumer itself. I think a lot of these things are things that we already knew, but it's interesting to discuss them further and kind of put a scientific methodological analysis edge to it. Mm, Definitely. So we will link the white papers in our social media. So make sure you follow us on Instagram and Twitter And we also have a Facebook and LinkedIn if you feel like you want to network. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) Um, certainly. But yes, I completely agree. I think it's interesting because there are practices that I would already do or associate with online platforms such as High Snobiety. But it's interesting for that to be like worded and put in a document, as you said, Catherine, and then read through it and identify with those it's kind of funny right it helps me remember that my passion for fashion is not just a frivolous (laughs) hobby (laughs) but something that's true it requires a lot of thought and research you know yeah well thanks so much for listening do 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 do